Welcome to episode 71 of the Ecomasaurus podcast. My name is Tim McDougall, and this episode, we are going to be talking about how you recover. So we, we frequently talk about, here's things that can go well or things you can learn. This is about when things go bad and how do you recover and build back, which anybody in e-commerce knows is a really critical skill set you must have. On with me here, I have Rachel Thompson and Ted Loesch, um, who, and Ted uh, we'll talk about a lot about ad recovery when something happens with your ads. And Rachel's going to talk a lot about what, ha- what happens or what do you do when something goes wrong with your products. And then as always, Shelby Kramer is producing for us as well. Um, but we're going to talk about things like when you go out of stock, what happens when you're trying to recover them back, when you have product compliance issues, when you have ad compliance issues, or when you just had to stop spend because you ran out of budget for a while, which we deal with a lot of small and medium-sized businesses, and that is an unfortunate fact of life sometimes. Um, as a reminder, uh, this, po- this podcast is sponsored by 50 Pound Boson, and 50 Pound Boson is an e-commerce marketing agency that aims to help small to medium-sized brand owners who are working to grow their e-commerce sales channels. And all of us on this podcast work for, e- work for 50 Pound Boson, so we speak from our experience uh, we all spend a lot of time helping small and medium-sized brand owners grow online. Uh, it's, it's what we do every day. Uh, episodes come out either Monday or Tuesday, uh, depending on holiday schedules and everything else, especially recently. Uh, you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you enjoy our content and want more of it, please give us a rating and subscribe to our show. You can have this appear in your feed. And if you haven't checked out our most recent episodes last week, episode 70, we did have some fun with a would you rather episode, just like the party game, but we put a would you rather around uh, hard to decide e-commerce scenarios and digital marketing scenarios. Uh, And we had a bunch of our team members on for that. And then the week before, we recapped all the top e-commerce news stories of December 2023. That was episode 69. and. The overall theme, the spoiler for that episode is there was a lot of crime being done and bad things by people in e-commerce in December 2023, and we covered the highlights, as well as a bunch of other good things that people did as well. Um, But first, um, let's get into this, Rachel and Ted, with uh, let's talk about what types of events we're going to recover. We're going to talk about recovering from bad events. Let's outline what types of events those are. One is out of stocks, um, which we, that's a fact of life. Even if you're running your business well, you can run out of stock. You can have supply chain issues. Another is compliance issues. So you could be doing everything well and an Amazon calls your product a pesticide and all of a sudden it's taken off the store for a bit. And then you have to figure out how do you recover once it comes back on. Uh, you can have ads suspended, which we have issues with that all the time. We also have a brand in-house called Grown-Ass Man Company, which is a solid shampoo bar. Does pretty well, but we frequently have ads that go down because we use the word ass in our product name, which is actually totally fine with Amazon Terms of Service, but an overzealous account support rep will ban us until we give them a phone call sometimes. Um, And we can also have just, yeah, when budget dries up and you have to stop ads, that with small businesses, that happens sometimes. So, Rachel, do we want to start with out of stocks? Sure. Talk to that. Yeah. Okay. 
So first, I always want to talk first about what do you do? What do we do to mitigate? So um, what do we do to prevent? Because out of stocks, Amazon doesn't like out of stocks. They punish you for out of stocks. They hurt your brand sales rank, your BSR, as it's called in the business. Um, so we want to avoid it, but sometimes it's unavoidable. Um, what are things, Rachel, let's talk through first. What are some things that when you see a partner we're working with, an account we're managing, start getting low, what are some things you do to get ahead of the game and try to prevent an out-of-stock? Um, for starters, we'll look at the product itself. If it fits into a variation with some other products on the account that aren't going to go out of stock, um, we'll maybe put that into a variation so that it can kind of help keep up some sales rank. Um, another thing, ironically, given the second half of this podcast, uh, we'll cut back on ads so that you know, we're not driving as yep. much traffic, give it a chance to kind of extend the amount of inventory that's already within Amazon's um, fulfillment network. Um, some things that we've considered in the past have been raising price, kind of making the product a little bit less attractive, trying to extend that inventory as long as we can. Those really only work. So if we know we're going to be out of stock for a short period of time, if we're looking at like months, without a stock um that's not going to help as much um and then for all of our clients we if they have the ability to do so um we will set up fbm fulfilled by manufacturer listings in the back end of amazon so that um as the fda inventory goes out of stock we have the ability to fulfill that inventory in-house if there is that backup inventory yeah and that's and that's a great recap of it. So the tactics are, so, and variations don't get talked about enough in this realm, but we'll often put things in large parent-child variations. And there's lots of reasons for that. It makes the ads more efficient and everything else. It makes sales more efficient. But also, if things are in a large parent-child set, some of the brand sales rank for maybe your bestseller starts to bleed off and transfer onto the other ones. And you, it preserves, it, it prevent some of the it's a it's a risk measure where you can mitigate some of the risk on that Um, and you can also if your main seller goes out of stock you may get customers coming in and buying some of the variations then instead so you can preserve some of the sales you would have lost the other things you know we have at times raised price up a little bit just to slow sales um, just so we don't run out of stock and slowed ads so we don't run out of stock and and those things may seem counterintuitive just always sell as much as you can but the there's a punishment that Amazon gives when you go out of stock that it takes you a while to get your rank back. So if you can eke out staying in stock by just a couple units even, and you don't go fully out of stock, it, it's long-term. And we've tested this many different ways, but the damage to your organic rank isn't as high. So you're trying to mitigate damage to the organic rank on that. Um, and, with, and, and also FBM we talked about. So Sometimes, and this really comes into play where we have products that have big spikes in demand, um, where our the brand we'll work with will have products in the warehouse. And we just can't get it to Amazon fast enough, and maybe you know, it's a product that sells uh, during heavy winter storms, which we have a product like that, uh, and and spikes heavily. We'll set up a dual listing, and it's totally legit to do that within Amazon now. It didn't used to be, but now it is where you can set up uh, your normal FBA listing, then side-by-side have an FBM version of that listing that really only activates 
when the FBA goes out of stock because it's never going to take the buy box until you go out of stock at FBA. So those are all good things to mitigate it, but sometimes you can't prevent it. So Rachel, when, when this happens, now the standard rule at Amazon that they, they used to say, I don't know if they've changed this recently, would be if you're out of stock for a day, that's, that's going to take four to five days before your brand sales rank recovers. If you're out of stock for three days, it may take you two to three weeks before your rank recovers. And this is all about recovering your rank so you don't lose sales velocity once you're back in stock. If you're out for a couple weeks, it might be two months before you recover your rank. So this is what we're trying to do on the out of stock is how do we, how do we prevent loss of sales rank? But okay, now we've lost our sales rank. We've been out for a little bit. How do we build it back up? Rachel, what are your recovery tactics here? I personally, once you have your inventory back in stock in a place that you like it to be at, you know, you got your good six to eight weeks cushion of inventory. Tell everyone, tell your friends and family, your socials, your email list, your coworkers, your neighbors, strangers, everyone uh, to try and get traffic back to that listing. You know, more people buying that product, especially not coming from ads. Um, really helps kind of bring that sales rank back up. We've also looked at changing around pricing, doing discounts, um, kind of a relaunch, kind of we're back in stock kind of thing. Um, that can help boost sales, kind of give you a jump back to where you are at. Um, and then ads. I mean, likely we either turned ads down in the lead up to going out of stock or they were turned off once the product actually was out of stock. Um, so you'll want to get those kicked back up either in like single SKU campaigns or, you know, depending on how out of stock worked for you um, and your brand, getting that set back up. So your tech and these tactics may repeat a lot of this particular tag. You're treating it like it's a new product, right? Like, because yes. new products will often say, you know, go, manufacture sales however you can because it's not going to rank at Amazon naturally. Um, but so call friends and family, have them buy something, have them get a little signal into Amazon. And again, we don't advise like trying to fake uh, sales by having large purchases from friends and family, but you're talking just have them buy a couple, get, get the wheels greased again. Yeah, use your network. I mean, it's, it's a perfectly legit tactic and even probably appreciated by Amazon to use, you know, your social media, your email list, driving that traffic, you know, what would normally maybe go to your website to Amazon. Yeah. And yeah, so your email list, any email you have, because most Amazon sellers also have their own Shopify site or some other site, but you're just put a discount on these. Would you put a discount on these? It's, it's basically to me, it's usually whatever you can do to get these things moving again. I think there are a few factors involved. You know, if it's a seasonal product, that people need right in this season, like say I smell in the middle of January. I don't know that you necessarily need to because it's a hot commodity. Um, but you know, if it's a product that is popular and you know, there's similar products out there like it, maybe, yeah, throw a discount in there, get things moving. Yeah. And, and I usually advise doing whatever you can. It's, it's, and the double pain point that people that, you know, our partners usually have to understand and come to grips with, and they do, is that, that not only did you lose value because you weren't selling for a while, 
but you're now going to lose value when it's back on sale because you're having to discount and spend extra on ads and everything else to get it rolling again. Um, and that's just the reality of like, there's a, there's a price to be paid for going out of stock and it's going to mean you didn't get sales for a while. And it's also going to mean you're going to probably give up your margin for the first couple of weeks back in or the first week or whatever to get those sales rolling again. So you can get that product back to where it was. Ted, from an ad standpoint, how do you usually approach, this is a product that it went out of stock, say, you know, it was being, you know, the factory just couldn't get it produced. There was a problem with that. It went out of stock. Everybody knew it was coming. What are you doing from an ad standpoint on that? Yeah. So I'll start with the almost out of stock. Totally agree with raising the price and lowering your bids. We, we definitely don't need to be spending heavily behind those, uh, especially if they're going to sell themselves out. Then once we do get our inventory back, uh, kind of want to move slow. You don't want to move too fast. Uh, you, you just don't want to overspend on something that generally isn't going to convert at the rate that it used to before it went out of stock. So you have to be sensitive. Yeah. So you're not doing a heavy up. So when it comes back on, Ted, you're not doing a heavy up. You're doing a slow start to the ad spend because you just think it's going to be inefficient out of the gates. Is that what you're saying? Two sides of the coin. If it's seasonal, okay. uh, if it's ice melt, and we just got our ice melt back, let's go ahead and push it really hard. Uh, if it's you know something like lip balm, and now is the season, let's let's crank it up. Uh, if it's an all around, you know, it's an evergreen product, then no, let's start slow. Uh, we just got our inventory back. And, you know, let's just slowly simmer that back up to a boil. Because uh, yeah, we don't want to just come shooting from the hip. And uh, looking at our efficiency, not not looking that great. But it really also depends on the volume that we're trying to move in what period of time, a lot of different factors to that. And, and we should throw in here that your general bias on how you buy ads on Amazon is based on efficiency rather than go high volume at all costs. So that, that's usually yeah. your bet. <laughs> uh, sometimes I'm on that side a little too much. Yeah, so you're on that side, which is great. But that, that means, but you're, that's why you would say, instead of, hey, it's back, we're going to just spend through the nose and get it back up to where it was. You would rather build it up gradually and more naturally again once it comes back from out of stock. Yep. And that's just daily changes is going in. Let's say we start at, you know, 20 cent bids. And then the next day, maybe we'll try 25 cents. And the day after that, we'll try 30 cents. So it's just this gradual stair stepping as opposed to just completely shocking the system and saying, hey, we've got all this inventory. We're going to try to blow through it really fast. Uh, we we want to do that somewhat gradually. But again, that's a case-by-case basis. Sometimes we we really just want to to crank that back up because we have a short window of time where that product actually has search volume and people are actually buying it. Yeah. And we should also clarify here that inventory is a weekly conversation with us, with all of our partners that we work with. So um, there's a weekly conversation and sometimes it's not real long. Sometimes it's just a quick check-in and everything's fine, but there's always a, okay, what are we low on? Is there resupply coming on those? Is there replenishment coming on those? Or is there anything that we're at risk of going out of stock on? And Rachel, you and I, when we're talking just upstream a little bit, we're saying, well, with slow ad spend, oftentimes if we know it's going to run out, we just stop ad spend uh, entirely on it and try to keep it in stock. Like we're intentionally slowing sales to keep things in stock and not lose the BSR that's been built up. You can build a via, uh, your brand rank for two years and then kind of lose it if you go out of stock for a month for quite a long time. So, um, you know, we'll often just cut spend, but 
But you don't, if you're not watching inventory regularly and looking at your weeks of inventory and stock and then having that conversation with the warehouse um, or the manufacturer, you can run out of stock and not know it. You could just think it's just waiting on replenishment and also you get surprised. So I having those, and Rachel, you have those conversations on inventory every week with folks as well, right? Mm-hmm. Rachel's nodding. Anybody listening won't be able to tell that, but Rachel's nodding on that. Um, and And part of this is all just getting ahead of things by, you know, we're the nerds who like to talk about inventory reporting and things like that, but, but it's so critical. I mean, the number one rule of selling is don't run out of product. Um, and if we are going to run out, we just want to slow things down and not, then it becomes a game of protecting the brand rank uh, until we can get product back in. Anything else to add on that for out of stocks? I feel some of these tactics we're going to talk about a recovery are going to be the same, but um, so we might be talking a little more mitigation now that we get into this than we thought, but Anything else on how to recover from out of stock that we want to talk about? Don't go out of stock. Don't go out of stock is the big thing. Yes. We spend a lot of time on trying not to go out of stock. How about when you have a compliance issue? So a compliance issue, the most common one is you get flagged as a pesticide, even though you're clearly not a pesticide, right? But Rachel, what other kinds of compliance issues do we run into? Uh, I've seen kind of three other major ones, uh, wrong item sent. So somebody ordered, you know, one variety of a product and they received another. Um, Generally, that's just an accident that happens in the Amazon warehouses, but it can become a bigger issue to the point where we have to pull inventory back, check it over, make sure that something didn't get mislabeled on our end. Um, There's also um, defective product condition complaints where um, you know somebody got your product, it didn't work for them. Um, sometimes you know that is an actual product condition that you need to address yourself. And sometimes that's somebody looking for a fast and easy refund. Um, but those will those will shut down your listing for a period of time. Um, and then the third is copyright. IP infringement type complaints and those sometimes are easy to clear and sometimes not. So what are you doing? Cause, and you're, and I should clarify for everybody listening, Rachel handles the majority of our support cases on things like this, which is a lot of work. Um, and all of us will jump in at times, but Rachel handles more than anybody else. What are the things you try and do in advance to prevent these kinds of issues coming up? Cause you've started setting up a whole defense system to try and prevent some of these issues. So we don't have as many to deal with. I would, or personally, I start by making sure that your copy, your images, your title is as clean as what it can possibly be. So, you know, if you're not a pesticide product, don't use pesticide language in your listing, like toxic, non-toxic. Um, over mold is a fun one that has gotten a flag before germs. So even if you're so not- let's pause on that. Let's pause on that because this is this is the point, and you've brought this point before, of what Amazon just scans for is is there portion, portions of these words in there. So we've had, if people say their product is non-toxic, it then gets flagged for being toxic, right? Because you've mentioned the word toxic in your listing. Overmold, part of that is because the word mold's in there, right? So we've gotten products banned because, oh, is this does this product contain molds? The way that Amazon scans for this it's pretty sloppy, to be honest, especially for a company investing as much in AI as they are. But if you say germ-free, like this is 
a particular kind of plastic that is germ-free, you get, you get flagged for having a product that is riddled with germs, right? Um, and, and is a pesticide now. Well, for making claims that it does keep germ-free and then Amazon assumes that, you know, you've treated your product with something, you're making pesticidal claims based off of. That's a good point. So it's not just them misreading the context of words. It's also them wondering how you got there, right? So if it's germ-free, what did you do to it? Did you do something that's also, you treat it with a chemical, it's a germ-free cup for babies, like drink out of like sippy cup. And because you're saying it's germ-free, did you treat it with something that's now also could be harmful to a kid or that needs to be notified, right? Right. Like that specific example, the copy that got us in trouble was a wide mouth design for easy cleaning to keep your product germ-free. We got to rewrite that, keep it free from dirt, free from grime, whatever, whatever you want to use, as long as you're not saying germs, bacteria, anything like that. Yeah. So part of your preventative is going through copy very minutely and carefully for anything that could potentially cause a flag or potentially cause Amazon to ask a question about something that really was never intended. Right. Uh, And this is not about faking out Amazon because your product should be free of all these things, but this is about not giving them any not giving Amazon anything to question. And, and usually it's where we see people get caught is on language where they're trying to clarify that their product is safe. And in that language, Amazon then flags it to say, well, now we're not sure if it's safe or not. So that's, it's an it's a interesting and counterintuitive thing to think about when writing copy for products on it. But that is, and there's, sometimes there's photo issues as well. Um, what about IP infringement issues? How do you, how do you scan and prevent for those? So that would be a case of where you don't want to use language that's like comparable to uh, brand dupe, language like that. You want to use um, compatible with instead of, and then, you know, just make sure that you're not being dumb. Don't put Disney in your title. Don't use brand names. Yeah. So don't use other brand names. Don't do the blatant one we've seen people do of actually, you know, take pictures of uh, Little Mermaid, for example, and make products with them and then advertise them on Amazon because you'll get busted. That is blatant copyright infringement. Ours is more, are there certain uh, proper noun things about a process that was used to make a product or something that you may not have agreement with? You might not have it in writing with that, with the manufacturer that you can use that term or you may have it. So if there's a certain plastic kind of, Triton plastic was one, right? So we've dealt with products that are made out of Triton plastic. Triton is a process and Triton is a patented process to make a certain type of very highly durable plastic that's used in a lot of goods. If you don't have proof that your product is made from Triton, you have permission to use the word Triton and using your listing, you can get flagged and taken down, right? That and just the, like the tissue versus Kleenex, lip balm versus chapstick. You know, there are certain words that... That will flag, yeah or brand names that we assume go with products, just make sure that you're not using like chapstick, Kleenex. So what happens when you get taken down here? Because this is, this is recovery is not, you're just waiting for new inventory. Now you're taken down and you have, so what is your recovery process when you get taken down here? Um, So generally you will have a period of time to back up. Sorry. We'll have to cut a little bit. Um, Generally, you get at least one warning uh, for product compliance issues. Um, just 
some sort of notification that you've received this complaint, you have to acknowledge it or appeal it. Um, your listing does not go down, but a mistake that we've made it's in the past has not has been to not focus or remember those as well as we should. Um, and then the second time you get that warning, it's a plan of action. You've got to submit all this new information now um, to tell Amazon that either the complaints that you're receiving are unwarranted and here's why, or that you're right, they're warranted. Here's what we're doing to fix the issue and just keep working your case until your product's back up, really. Yeah. And number one on this, how to prevent what you need to do on this always has always surprised me, but it's basically watch your email and your alerts. Right. And, and we've had, cause we've come in sometimes when somebody has found us and said, all my products are banned. Like, I don't know what to do. And then we've come in and realized that Amazon was sending out emails to whoever was the account owner or whatever email that was set up to. And nobody was checking that account and none of the email warnings got, uh, read and now everything gets banned and it's been banned for a while. Those are hard to recover from. Um, a lot of what you also do, Rachel, I've seen you keep files of, Hey, here's where we use a certain process that we have the trademark, but we have permission to use. You either have documents on hand that you've sourced from our partners, or you know who at the partner, who at the company we work with is the person who keeps all those. And you have that list and you're immediately on the phone with them saying, Hey, we have this issue. I need documentation on this. We're, or, or it's child safety issues, right? The other one that can happen on this is Amazon deems that your product can be used by kids. You haven't provided child safety documentation and yeah, boom, you need to have, you need to know the person who does the child safety documentation and be ready to get them on a moment's notice to get that taken care of. Knowing the keeper of the documentation and the invoices is very important. Yes. And in small companies, oftentimes nobody knows who that person is. So oftentimes what we do is just ask the question, who is the person who keeps this information? Or if nobody keeps it, where is it kept and who is accountable for it? Because these are going to become issues. Um, what else to recover? Because then, then it's just, you just pursue the cases with Amazon, right? You're assembling your information and pursue the cases to get back online. Yeah. Uh, one more thing is just monitoring the voice of the customer page. Uh, I think in 2024, Amazon's yes. going to make that page a much bigger deal. Um, because right there, you can monitor, you know, if there's an uptick in returns due to receiving the wrong products. If, you know, there is maybe an issue going on with your products that, you know, multiple people, you've got a spike in your return rate due to something actually being broken. Um, that's where you can kind of see these problems coming and prepare before your listing gets cut down. But let's hit on that for a minute because Amazon has said that, hey, return rates, high return rates are a much bigger issue for them going into 2024 than they were going into this year. And they're watching that because they want to cut down that cost in their system because they want to, you know, what they, how they always phrase it, they want to cut down on returns because then they can save money in their system and they can pass those savings on to all, everybody. Uh, but they've made a big deal about this, in, including, hey, we're going to start suspending products or charging extra for fulfillment of products that have high return rates. Um, so we've also, in addition to the voice of the customer page, which Rachel mentioned, which you should be watching, and we've learned that most sellers don't watch that page very much. You should be watching that page and it should be in part of a weekly ritual to go check on what's happening on the page and what new things are in there. It doesn't take real long, um, but it's the voice of the customer page. And if you're an Amazon seller, you have it. Um, 
It was introduced last year, the year before, um, fairly recently. Um, it's been around for quite a while. It's just, it's gotten revamped. That's right. So yeah, so it was around for a while, not as useful in the past, much more useful now. Um, what we've also started doing is going through all of Amazon's return reports and compiling those and building, we built some tools on our end that allow us to say, okay, here's this product. Here's all our products. Which ones have the highest return rates? Because we know Amazon's going to be looking at products with high return rates. And then from what customers say, because customers have to give a reason why they're returning. They can make up a BS reason if they want, but they have to give a reason. And Amazon has, it's between 20 and 30 different reasons they can give. Like they're all bucketed into things. And so we've started building out reports saying, okay, what are highest return rate products? And then what are the nature of those complaints? And if the nature of the complaint is, um, and we take out the things that says Amazon delivered to the wrong address or, uh, you know, or it was damaged at the fulfillment center, things like that, that we can't, that aren't part of the product. But we're isolated on things where does the customer say it's defective? Does the customer say it was the wrong size? Does the customer say this does not work the way the listing, you know, it doesn't work as described? Um, all those things that are preventable and we're trying right now, and we've been kicking off a lot of projects around this, to get ahead of the game on those. And, you know, here's our high return rate products. Here's the ones that have more than their normal share of complaints that are product related, not delivery or fulfillment related. Um, and not just somebody saying, oops, I ordered the wrong thing. But what are ones that we can act on? And so we've been getting very active on that front too, much more so than past years, because our fear is that Amazon's going to A, start charging. Well, we know they're going to charge more for high return rate products. So we want to cut those returns down. But they're also going to start suspending products that are high return rate and just saying it's too expensive for our system for you to keep selling these and we're just going to stop you. Um, and we know this because we've been dealing with one or two of those in Q4 um, that were high volume products at high, high return rates. And we're in a recovery process with Amazon trying to figure that out. Um, anything else on that, Rachel? Before we jump to the ads side of the issue with Ted? No, I would say just monitor, control what you can. Yeah, yeah I think the, the, the number one thing people can do, which is something that takes a little bit of time, but, but consistent is, yes, monitor the voice of the customer page. Monitor your emails and make sure that they aren't set to go to some, like a lot of companies will say, will send their main emails to Amazon at company name, right? Um, or they'll set up an account that's not anybody's, own email account, but it's just a general account. And then nobody checks a general account. And that's, a, that's maybe the most frequent time we've seen instance of Amazon's telling you there's a problem with this product, but nobody knows about it because nobody's checking that general email box. Uh, and also consider doing what we've started doing. So we can, we can preach this because we're practicing it of going through those return reports, which are buried deep in the fulfillment report section on Amazon but it will tell you a lot of detail about why, about what's being returned and why. And it's, you know, we'll compare sales rates to return rates, pick out the high ones and then pull apart the high ones and see what's going on. Um, great. Ted and Rachel, you get involved in this too. So it's actually both of you. But when things go down, when ads get suspended or ads are marked ineligible, what's our recovery process there? The recovery process is generally starts with Rachel. Uh, Rachel getting that <laughs> suspension lifted. So everything starts with Rachel. Everything then, right? starts that's, with Rachel. That's the motto here. Yep. Okay. Um, and then 
using your existing campaign structure is generally what's going to work best. We've learned the hard way that if you start building new campaigns and kind of testing the system to see if the suspension has actually been lifted, might result in additional suspensions. So you want to use your old campaigns and optimize those as opposed to launching a bunch of new campaigns because it's always a celebration, right? We've got this product back in the mix, maybe one of our best sellers, and we want to really push ads as fast as we can. And you need to be a lot more delicate than that. Just keep it in the campaigns that it was in. Keep an eye on it. Make sure that it's not going through new reviews because you don't want the product to go back through review uh, once the suspension is lifted. And that's what we're really avoiding by not launching new campaigns around that product. Yeah. So let's let's dial up in that. So you're talking about once it's actually back up. So it, the product's eligible for ads again. And what your, very, what your guidance is, and you've been consistent with, with that internally here, is don't launch a bunch of new campaigns for that. Just take an old campaign. You can raise the spend, but if you launch every time you launch a new campaign, that product for ads goes back into review and you risk it getting made ineligible again, right? So you're just trying to be super cautious around structure and take an existing campaign and maybe dial it and spend. That's exactly right. Um, but let's back up a second on this and talk about what kind of things cause you to get suspended from ads. What kind of things cause you to be ineligible for ads? So you're still selling on Amazon. It's still listed. You just can't advertise it. What are the kind of things that cause that? Generally, what happens the most, and of course, it's something that we see almost exclusively on our own internal brand, which is super fun, uh, is product brand copy compliance issues. So our internal brand is Grown-Ass Manco. We've mentioned the A in Grown-Ass Manco is the problem. Um, Amazon has acknowledged that registered and trademarked brand names are acceptable to be advertised. Grown-Ass Manco is, um, but that doesn't stop the bots from flagging us every now and then. Um, so to fix that, it's just a case and working it until you get the answer that you like. And there could be other things too. Like high, we've seen a couple instances where high return rates, ads became ineligible, right? So you got another reason to watch your return rates. High return rates, but the other things get miscategorized into product categories that can't be advertised. We've seen that a couple of times with sewing machines machine lubricants being marked as other types of lubricants. Yes. And we've seen uh, random products get marked, at, including uh, sewing equipment, right? Get marked as a sex toy somehow in Amazon system, which it's clearly not. Uh, we also had a musical teddy bear that was also considered an, an adult item. Yes. An adult, an adult toy. We'll just say, um, so things get misclassified. So that can happen a lot. Um, I'm also going to echo back to something, Rachel, you brought up here is one of the things we've seen is uh, we'll, we'll sign on with somebody and then they'll say, well, we've been trying to run ads. They just got much, much less effective. And then we'll realize that a lot of their products are ineligible and that's why it became less effective. And they just weren't monitoring. We actually had this on some of our internal things where we missed some things that got marked ineligible at one point. Um, and then we figured it out. We got it all fixed. But this is also the, and they don't send you email notices on, this is on products. If a product's going to be marked ineligible, you'll get an email notice and you'll get a warning. If an ad 
if a product becomes ineligible for ads, they're not going to take it off Amazon, but they're going to make it ineligible for ads. We don't get anyone. They don't send you an email warning. They just mark it ineligible and, in, and they don't say anything to you. Um, the only way you know, and this is what we've, we've been doing, we do this routinely too, is Ted, like you have to go through all the campaigns and look at what products you're eligible and which ones are not, right? That's usually how you, how we scan for this, which is really caveman and backwards. Yes. Like, but. Uh, and it's one of the reasons that we use the all products auto low bid campaigns. Hopefully that wasn't over everybody's heads, but basically we put all of the products into one campaign. You want to do this early on because as we just mentioned, if you do this after a suspension, everything is going to go back to review. So you want to put all of your products into one campaign, let's say five cents, 10 cent bids, just really low. Um, and then that makes it a lot easier to manage if you've got a thousand products, let's say, and then yes. you can just sort through the ads dashboard and you can say what's eligible and what's not. Then I go back to Rachel and Rachel can start cases on that. So it is, you know, it's a bit of a caveman approach for sure, but it's also the most time efficient and the most effective way to tell if all of a sudden something became ineligible. Yeah. So, so let's pause on that one because that's actually a really good tip for anybody trying to trying to watch for this, right? Since there's no notification for products becoming ineligible for ads, which is an oversight on Amazon and they just haven't addressed. What we always set up is a, what Ted calls a low product. So it's low, low bid all products. So we put every single SKU into a, a campaign and we put a really low bid price on it. So if it's going to get, if it's going to get an ad, it got it cheap, right? And we just set it on auto. And that way we can just pull up inside that campaign and look at the product list and inside that campaign in the product list, it will note which ones are ineligible for ads. Um, and that campaign may actually sell some product. Um, it may work. It may, it may work as a good sales tool, but even if it doesn't, even if, you know, we might put a five cent bid cap on everything and everything in that category, say it's skincare, you don't get any impressions for five cents in skincare, right? It's, it's super overbid, but we can then pull up in that campaign and that's our canary in the coal mine of, is there anything with a red ineligible by it? And then we know we need to act on it. And we just have to routinely have a, have a pattern of just going back and looking at that. And it works pretty well. It, it's, it's a better notification system than anything else that exists. If Amazon implemented something to focus on that, we'd probably use that instead. But, there's just, so we, but we use this cheat, right, to get there. And it's fairly ingenious. And Ted, you started it, but it's on every single account we manage. It works. I also hope that they get a little bit more sophisticated in giving us alarms and <laughs> giving us more information. But for now, yeah, we'd we, like to we have a workaround and it works. Great. So let's, let's deal with that. Let's deal with the, and, and the only, on the recovery there, the no, one note you made, Ted, was on, especially from recovering from that, the temptation is, well, let's create a, let's create a new campaign focused on just the SKUs and ineligible and let's blast ads for a while to get it back up. But that can actually trigger it to get re-suspended again, mm -hmm. is what that does. Uh, it can also affect the rest of your product catalog as well, which we found out the hard way with uh, our shampoo bars. Yeah. Yeah. So, so some of this we've learned through trial and error. Um, but on this, you know, your advice and what we do is, is opposite of what your, everybody's gut instinct is, which is don't create new campaigns. Don't create anything that causes that product to go back into review and get re-suspended. You want to be very ginger with it when it, it's, it's a patient that just came out of the hospital. We want to be very, very ginger with it, treat it very carefully and 
average and just we may increase budget between the, on existing campaigns it's included in, but we're not going to start a new campaign right away for it until it stabilizes. It's a, it's a delicate process, but yeah, I mean, your gut instinct, like yep. you said, is always like it's back up. Everybody's excited. And if you get yeah, overly split, excited, split. you yeah, you you really just kind of ruined your chances of getting that product back up anytime soon. Yeah, so temper enthusiasm and treat this like the patient that just got out of surgery. Last thing we want to address, because this one's going to be pretty fast here, is um, recovering from, you had to stop your ads because the company just ran out of money right now and had to cut budget for a little bit. This, in the small to medium-sized brand world, this does happen, Of especially since you're paying for product to manufacture, you know, sometimes six months before it's going to sell. So sometimes there's a cash flow issue where you just stop ads for a little bit. We don't ever want that to happen. And it happens pretty seldomly, to be honest, but it does happen. What's your recovery? There's not a lot of mitigation things other than just, yeah, manage your cash flow better, which is sounds, sounds snarky to say, but when you're bouncing back from that, Ted, are your strategies for bouncing back from that different than if it was because of a compliance issue? Yeah, so I think you really want to get out ahead of it. And that's all conversational with our clients is, you know, just making sure that that never happens. Because uh, you don't want to just stop advertising. It destroys the whole flow. It's like building a dam and then trying to break it down and thinking that that's, you know, something that's going to work, which just doesn't. Um, so yeah, I think the first thing would definitely be having those, uh, those conversations, lowering the bids early on lowering the budgets early on because just cutting everything off is, you know, you're always just going to start from scratch because now the algorithm is looking, especially if we're using automated bidding strategies, the algorithm is going to be looking at that and saying, well, we don't have any recent data to work with. So all of a sudden your efficiency is gone. Uh, all the keywords that we, you know, had, had been ranking for all of a sudden we've lost our rank on those. So the key being there. Let's try to never run out of budget. When you do, however, again, start delicate. Don't try to you know, crank it to 11. I do always love a single keyword ad group. So if there was something that we were ranking for, we're always keeping our eye on how our organic rankings are working. And if we notice that during the time that we weren't advertising, all of a sudden we dropped an organic rank for you know, our top selling keyword, let's go ahead and focus on that. Focus the majority of the budget on those specific keywords. And then as we start to build our sales rank back up, we can kind of look at some other options. But I would say that single... But, but your insight here, the key thing that, you, that you've communicate, communicated to us and our partners on this is, hey, if you're thinking you need to cut budget entirely for a little bit because of a cash flow issue, don't cut it. You may cut it drastically, but don't cut it all the don't way. Cut it all the way. trickle some spend in. If, even if it's a, you can keep this campaign going. At, it used to be running two hundred dollars a day, but you keep it going at five dollars a yep. day. Because as soon as you stop entirely, there's a risk that all the learning that's accumulated in that campaign eventually just burns off. And Amazon said it's not recent enough to matter. It's going to start from scratch. But if you can keep it trickling at a couple dollars a day, it's going to keep learning, and you're not going to. It's not going to learn as fast, but you're not going to lose all the learning that's accumulated in the past either. And focus on those long tail keywords. You know. Just stay, yeah. stay in the auction for what works incredibly well for you. And then just, you know, maybe not even pause everything else. Maybe just drop those bids down to five cents. But if men's organic shampoo bar is working really well for you, 
and you've only got five bucks a day, you know, keep that one at about 50 cents because that's your number one keyword. And, and we don't want to be losing out on those auctions. Yeah. And we haven't had to ever stop advertising on that brand. So we're using an example, but we've managed that one pretty well. Um, but, but overall, it's, hey, just keep, you know, if you're talking about having to cut back a bunch of stuff, just leave enough in there to keep these campaigns alive, even if they're barely on life support, right? But alive and barely on life support is vastly preferable because you retain the learnings when you come back on. We're anticipating these are going to come back on at some time and, and preserving that data is really important. There's value in there. Um, I think that wraps us up, guys. Ted, Rachel, anything to add at the end here? About how do you bounce back? Prevention is key. I'm getting shaking heads. Prevention. Prevention is much more important. That's usually what we, you know, we have to do a lot of, okay, now there's been a problem. Now we're recovering. That's just nature of the business. But usually, you know, we earn more of our value for our partners by trying to prevent more of these things than anything else. I would say prevention and patience. Uh, so once, once you get your listings yeah. back up, don't try to rush it. Be smart about it. And and persistence, I think, is also part of the recovery. And that's one of our values up on the wall is just persistence. Persistence beats flash every time, right? So um, that we need to be persistent on both the maintenance part about this, checking up, but also when something goes down about how do you keep pushing to get it fixed because it gets really frustrating. Um, great. And thank you, everybody. So thanks, Rachel and Ted and Shelby. We didn't call on you, Shelby, to embarrass you and make you talk about something this this week so um but thank you for producing this and thank you all for listening uh and joining us on the ecomasaurus podcast we'll be back again next week but in the meantime if you have any questions or feedback or episode ideas or anything like that feel free to shoot us a message at roar at ecomasaurus.com that's r-a-w-r at ecomasaurus.com and if you are a small to medium-sized brand owner that needs help growing your e-commerce sales channels, you can find us at 50 Pound Boson. That's 50-P-O-U-N-D-B-O-S-O-N.com. Thanks, everybody. 